1: In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Jeremiah, chapters 6 through 8.
0: That starts to paint the irony of all of this because you're going to see his words here is that the Valley of Hinnom, which is their place of worship, is going to become a refuse dump that burns continually. That happens subsequent. So the, the uh, pagan sanctuary becomes their cemetery. Okay? Now, as we go through... Well, I come back to that. Let's just let's see what it says here. Verse uh, uh, 31, They have built the high place of Topheth, which is in the valley of the, of the Son of Him, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart. Therefore, behold, the days come, saith the Lord... That it shall no more be called Topheth, nor the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. The valley of slaughter, the word, the definite article is present. For they shall bury in Topheth till there be no more place. And the carcasses of this people shall be food for the fowls of heaven and for the beasts of the earth. And none shall frighten them away. Then will I cause to cease from the cities of Judah and from the streets of Jerusalem the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride. For the land shall be desolate. Bride and bridegroom are there as a idiom of joy. He's going to, re- he's going to remove the first three verses of chapter eight are viewed by some scholars to really belong to chapter 7 in concept, okay? And to really understand this, you need to understand that the ancients dreaded the idea of not being buried. One of the things that they feared was not only to die, but to not be buried. I mean, it was just a... You and I sort of probably shrug that off for a lot of reasons, but to them, that was a heavy-duty thing, and God is dealing with that. That's why these carcasses are going to lay around, and we get to chapter 8, Uh, uh, We'll jump into this one. Let's just keep moving. Um, The first three verses of chapter 8, so we'll finish chapter 7 for sure, right? Okay. Chapter 8, verse 1. At that time, saith the Lord, they shall bring out the bones of the kings of Judah and the bones of his princes and the bones of the priests and the bones of the prophets and the bones of the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Bones of the kings of Judah, bones of his princes, bones of the princes, bones of the prophets, bones of the inhabitants in Jerusalem five categories of people who are going to be disinterred right out of their graves and they shall spread them before the sun and the moon and the host of heaven whom they have loved whom they have served whom they have walked for after whom they have walked and whom they have sought and whom they have worshipped and they shall not be gathered nor buried they shall be for refuse upon the face of the earth. God is upset. And you see that even in the construction of the sentences. Five groups of people whose bones will be disinterred and laid out. Laid out where? Before the hosts of heaven. Sun, the moon, the stars, astrology. One of these they're worshiping. Right? You want to worship them? Fine. You can worship them for eternity. You know, even after you're dead, we're going to disinter your bodies and lay those bones out before these things that you hold in such great regard, right? And then, list five verbs. Okay? Whom you have loved, whom after whom you've served, whom after whom you've walked, whom you have sought, and have worshipped. They shall not be gathered or buried, they shall be for refuge by the face of the earth. See, even in the structure of the sentence, it's tight, it's tough, it's articulate. Five groups of bones, five verbs, uh, uh, sarcastically or cynically modeling their worship of these things when they were alive. Okay? Now, as you see this attitude of God to his people for rejecting him and worshiping idols, as you read this in an Old Testament context... Then when you move to the book of Revelation, and you see God's fury poured out upon the whole earth, you'll discover not only is he mad, he chooses the same idioms all the way through here. There's carcasses, there's birds, right? The bowls of wrath are climactically poured out, and they climax where? In the air. He pours out in the air. Why the air? There's the seventh one, because the prince of the power of the air. The whole thing has structure. The whole thing has consistency with the concepts that God has introduced in the Old Testament. And as you read the Old Testament and Revelation, you'll see it increasingly linked together. Verse 3, And death shall be chosen rather than life by all the residue of them that remain of this evil family, who, shall, who remain in the places to which I have driven them, saith the Lord of hosts. We might pause briefly to look at an analogous paragraph Turn to Leviticus 26. I'd like to acquaint you with something that in your Bibles you might want to mark because it is very fun. Leviticus. First thing is to find Leviticus. Okay. It's in the Torah. That's the only hint I'll give you. And we'll start at verse 32 and take it about 39. Leviticus 26. And I will bring the land unto desolation, and your enemies who dwell therein shall be astonished at it. And I will scatter you among the nations. Now, this here is not focusing on Jeremiah, particularly because Jeremiah was specific. It was a captivity into Babylon. Leviticus 26, verse 33. I will scatter you among the nations and will draw out a sword after you, and your land shall be desolate and your cities waste, and the land shall enjoy her Sabbaths as long as it lieth desolate. And ye are in your enemy's land, even then shall the land rest and enjoy her Sabbaths. How long has the land been denied its Sabbaths? 490 years. And what happens at the time that Jeremiah is writing is that the 490 years are exhausted. You've used up your rope, Israel. You owe me 70. One year for seven. You didn't like keep the Sabbath of the land. You owe me, and this is in Second Chronicles the basis of the Babylonian captivity being 70 years is to regain the, the Sabbath they did not keep, as per Leviticus 26 Verse 35, as long as the life desolate shall rest, because it did not rest in your Sabbaths when ye dwelt in it. Now this is, this is Leviticus, in the time of Moses, speaking the past tense of what? That which is yet coming. When you're outside the time domain, past, present, and future have no tense. So often God will forecast in the past tense, because as far as he's concerned, it's happened. And that's, praise God for that. Especially if you lived before the cross. He could save you from the cross, even though the cross hadn't been happened yet. So Adam and Moses, whatever, can be saved by the cross on Calvary. Ultimately, that paid for all of them. So fortunately, that works that way. Verse 36, and upon them who are left alive unto you, I will send... A faintness into their hearts, and the in the lands of their enemies, and the sound of the shaken leaf shall chase them. I mean, they're that frightened. The leaf shakes, and they're nervous. And they shall flee as fleeing from a sword, and they shall fall when none pursueth. And they shall fall one upon another, and as, they, as it were, before a sword, when none pursueth. And ye shall have no power to stand before your enemies. And ye shall perish among the nations, and the land of your enemies shall eat you up. And they who are left of you shall pine away in the iniquity of your enemies' lands, uh, and also in the iniquities of their fathers shall they pine away with them. It's interesting to this day I had the occasion to travel with a very famous Jewish financier to Europe. And it was interesting that when he's in Europe, he's nervous. And I kid, I said, what's the difference? A Jew in Europe? you got to be kidding. It's interesting that even today, maybe especially today, there is that vestige of sin, not just the Nazi Holocaust, of just centuries of being without a country. You say, well, gee, Israel's in the land. Yeah, okay, but habits die hard. Now, the other passage is analogous. You might turn to Deuteronomy 28. Pick it up about verse uh, 64 and the lord shall scatter thee among all the people and from the one end of the earth even unto the other and there thou shalt serve other gods which neither thou nor thy fathers have known even wooden and stone and um, even and among these nations shalt thou thou find no ease neither shall the soul thy foot foot have rest but the lord shall give thee there a trembling heart a failing of eyes and a sorrow of mind the plight of the wandering Jew for centuries. And thy life shall hang in doubt before thee, and thou shalt fear day and night, and thou shalt have no assurance of thy life. In the morning thou shalt say, would God that it were evening. and the evening thou shalt say, would God that it were morning. For the fear of thine heart, wherewith thou shalt fear, and for the sight of thine eyes, which thou shalt see, and so forth. Anyway, these are some passages. The diaspora, the dispersion, that's the second phase. The first, gap, first phase was Babylon. They come back from that. And the second phase is after they reject the Lord Jesus Christ, they go into the diaspora. These same passages have overtones one with another. And we will be talking about that again. So I thought it's a good occasion just to jump into Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. By background, we are in the beginning of chapter 8, which I'm picking up at verse 4 because the first three verses are really part of chapter 7. And my suggestion is, we just keep rolling it. Verse four, moreover thou shalt say unto them, Thus saith the Lord, shall they fall and not rise, shall he turn away and not return? Why then is the people of Jerusalem slidden back by a perpetual backsliding? They hold fast to deceit and they refuse to return. This is almost sarcasm here, you see. Is um shall they fall and not rise? You know, if we stumble, we pick ourselves up, right? If we get screwed up, we turn around and try to repair it. Not these guys. That's what he's saying. See. Should I way away not return? Why then is this people of Jerusalem slidden back by perpetual backsliding? They hold fast to deceit, they refuse to return. I hearkened and heard, but they spoke not aright. No man repented of his wickedness, saying, What have I done? Everyone turned to his course, as the horse rusheth un- into the battle. Yea, the stork in the heaven knoweth her appointed times, and the turtle, that is the turtle dove. And the crane and the swallow observe the time of their coming. In other words, these are all references to birds, and the birds know their migratory patterns. They know when the season is to move and come back and whatever. These birds are smarter than these people. That's what he's saying. But my people knew not the law of the Lord. Hey, they turn away from the Lord. Fine, there's time to come back and repent. But they're not doing that either. See? How 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 do you say we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? Lo, certainly, in vain, uh, made he yet, the pen of the scribes is in vain. The wise men are ashamed, they are dismayed and taken. Lo, they have rejected the word of the Lord, and what wisdom is in them. Therefore will I give their wives unto others and their fields to them that shall inherit them, and for every one, from the least, even to the greatest, is given to covetousness, from the prophet, even to the priest, every one dealeth falsely. For they have healed the hurt of the daughter of my people lightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Part of the undertone here, by the way, you should recognize, and I may not have emphasis enough, is that the false prophets were preaching to the people that everything's going to be fine, the Lord's going to take care of us. You know, a message of hope and peace. And Jeremiah's voice is unpopular, but in total contrast to that. They're saying, Peace, peace, where there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? Nay, they were not at all ashamed, neither could they blush. Therefore shall they fall among them that fall, and at the time of the judgment they shall be cast down, saith the Lord. I will surely consume them, saith the Lord. There shall be no grapes in the vine, nor figs in the fig tree, nor leaf shall fade, and the things that I have given them shall pass away from them. Why do we sit still? Assemble yourselves and let us enter into the fortified cities, and let us be silent there for the Lord our God hath put us to silence and given us water and gall to drink because we have sinned against the Lord. Incidentally, verses 13 chapter 8 verse 13 through chapter 9 verse 23, that passage. Jeremiah 8:13 to 9:23 is the portion of the Scripture that is read in the synagogue on the 9th of Ap, the 9th of Ap on the Jewish calendar is the day of the destruction of Jerusalem, of um, the fall of uh, the temple, the destruction of the temple. It's celebrated in Judaism, if I can use the word celebrate that way, it's observed on the 9th of Ap, and the passage of Scripture that deals with that is verse 13 that we just read down through uh, 23rd verse of chapter 9. Verse 13, I will surely consume them, saith the Lord. There should be no grapes in the vine, nor figs in the fig tree, nor leaf shall weigh. The things that I've given them shall pass away from them. Why do we sit still? Assemble yourselves and let us enter into the fortified cities. Let us be silent there, for the Lord our God hath put us to silence and given us water of gall to drink, because we have sinned against the Lord. Why do you go to the fortified cities? To buy a little more time, because the enemy's coming. That's the idea. Verse 15, We looked for peace, but no good came, and a time of health, and behold, trouble. The snorting of his horses was heard from Dan. Whose horses? Horses were forbidden in Israel. Solomon got in trouble because he wasn't supposed to deal in horses. It's fine for for nations to do, but Israel wasn't supposed to. And uh, who the horses are? They're Babylonian horses. It's the cavalry that made Babylon famous. And the whole land trembled at the sound of the neighing of his strong ones, and they are come, and they have devoured the land and all that is in it, the city and those that dwell in it. For behold, I will send serpents and adders among you, which will not be charmed, and they will bite you, saith the Lord. When uh, when I would comfort myself against sorrow, my heart is faint in me. Behold, the voice of the cry of the daughter of my people, because of those who dwell in a far country, is not the Lord in Zion, is not her king in her? Why have they provoked me... uh, to anger with their carved images and their foreign vanities. Here is one of the saddest verses in the Scripture. Verse 20. The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. Barley, wheat, and spelt were harvested in April, May, and June. That was the wheat and the, the grains. Figs, grapes, and pomegranates were harvested in August through September. Olives, October. But what the plea is here in, 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 to people who understood the cycles and knew there was a time to harvest, and if you didn't harvest by that time, you've had it, right? The harvest is past. The summer is ended, and we are not saved. Go. My suspicion is he's not talking about famine, although I'm sure that was present. He's talking about something more, far more fundamental. This people had missed their opportunity. They had an opportunity to repent. They blew it. So do you and I. So do you and I. We have an opportunity. And it ain't forever. There's a window for you and I. To hear God speaking to you, to respond to him. Not to me with every eye bowed and raise your hand and all that, none of that. To Him, privately. Just drive home tonight. Talk to Him. Pray to Him. Hear Him back to you. Because there is a time when the harvest will be past. There is a time when the summer has ended. I hope there's never a time that you're, forced to say we are not saved. Verse 21, For the hurt of the daughter of my people am I hurt. I am black, this may have taken hold of me. Verse 22, interesting verse. Is there no bomb in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is not the health of the daughter of my people recovered? Interesting phrase. You've probably heard that phrase. Is there a bomb in Gilead? Because there's some several songs, and it's become a figure of speech in our language. Why? Well, Gilead, first of all, is east of Jordan, north of Moab. It's an area, but it's famous for the storax tree, and the rosin and gum of it become a very important healing agent. Gilead was the source of, in that day, of pharmaceuticals. The balm from Gilead was, in fact, used as a healing agent. And you'll find references in Genesis 37, verse 25. Jeremiah 46 is going to come up, and also in Jeremiah 51, and it's also in Ezekiel 27. In other words, it's it shows up in, in the Scripture. The phrase here, from which the idiom comes, is almost a plea. Is there no bomb in Gilead? In other words, that's sort of like saying, gee, there's no coal in Newcastle, or something, you know? Is there no oil in Texas? You know, that's sort of the analogy, OK? Is there no bomb in Gilead? Is, and obviously, what we're suffering from won't be healed. By the rosin of the Storax tree. That's not the point. It's a figure of speech. The bomb from Gilead was the healing agent. It was the penicillin or the uh, uh, whatever. Hmm? Is there no bomb in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is not the health of the daughter of my people recovered? What daughter is he talking about? The daughter of Zion, city of Jerusalem, the nation, Judah. Okay, we're uh, probably it makes sense not to jump into get part of chapter 9. We'll catch that next time. We're going to find an interesting word in verse 15 called wormwood. We'll talk a little bit about that next time. And again, the scattering among the people will show up in verse 16. And uh, we're going to have some interesting passages here. We're also going to get into chapter 10. And chapter 10 is a sarcastic a passion as you will find in the Scripture. And it's fun to talk, if you haven't taken the first 16 verses or so, whatever it is, of chapter 10 for a Christmas card or something to send to your Christian friends around Christmas time. I want to remind you to call your attention to Jeremiah 10. It's a wonderful way to put the less than adequately grounded person in the Scripture on a a guilt trip. But it's not Christmas trees he's talking about. It's something quite different, but it's fun to kid about it um because I don't really think we make a an idol of the christmas tree or if you do you got a problem. But the point is it's um but we'll use uh, that chapter to also it mentions in there the signs of heaven and we'll talk a little bit we'll do a little review maybe on some of that material and uh and uh, move on. But chapter 7 through 10 are the so-called temple discourses. Uh they not only are very articulate, they succeeded in getting Jeremiah uh on lists for life. Uh, The people had a tough time with all of that, but, um, yeah, as we get in more and more into Jeremiah, we're going to find increasingly, it's my view, that increasingly his prophetic, you never lose sight of his mission, which is to call... The to the people the word of the Lord and and call I say call them to repentance is what I started to say but he knows they're not going to hear them but he still faithfully with great passion pleads with them to hear uh, what God is saying uh, he never loses sight of that and he's very focused on that very immediate mission before him on the one hand on the other hand we're going to find increasingly his allusions that God puts in his in his in his mouth and in his pen are going to be uh, uh, longer-term prophetic, that is, we're going to find the whole basis of the New Testament articulated in Jeremiah, perhaps more clearly than any other book in the Old Testament. And we're going to find all kinds of things that will be um, increasingly relevant to our day and age. But I don't want us to skip through this particular dirge of doom on, on, in, on uh, Judah without at least allowing for the possibility that uh, it might apply to you and I that as we face the United States and its confusion, as we see it's uh, increasingly in various sectors of industry and the media and elsewhere uh, controlled by men who are uh, who don't have any—that have no concept of God or what He's done for us, as we see uh, various power groups in, in the nation's capital continue to move in ungodly ways and, in fact, that's the polite term, anti-godly ways, um, it should not surprise us to see uh the um the uh are we reaping the rewards in our society um when a nation um loses its commitment uh to God, human relations become insecure. We'll talk more about that as we go when a nation loses its its grasp, its perception, its commitment to its God. Human relationships become insecure. I suppose, and I'm not being when I say this. You may laugh because you may think I'm kidding, because I do kid a lot about attorneys. But I suspect the litigation and the rise of of uh, the legalistic technicians is a measure of that insecurity. But what's the root cause? insecurity in human relationships. And um, and as that occurs, uh, then our ability to communicate is, uh, and our confidence uh, can only move towards anarchy. tragedy. What's the root cause? Our commitment to God. We used to, you know, on our coins, in God we trust. <laughs> Do we? Anyway, let's stand for a closing word of prayer. The United States has a benefit that it doesn't have the explicit commitment by God of an immediate judgment. Judah was in bad shape because God says to Jeremiah, hey, don't even pray for them. They're done. He had not said that about us. So we can take comfort in the fact that our... I'm have of Dr. Teller's remark, the difference between a pessimist and an optimist. And, uh, you know, a pessimist, pessimist is, um, is uh, someone who, who you know, sees a view but doesn't enjoy it, who's always right but doesn't enjoy it optimist is someone who thinks the future is uncertain. And if you talk about that, he says, then it's, of course, our duty to be an optimist, because then we at least try. He's speaking in a secular sense. Hey, what comfort there is, is that our future is uncertain. Judah is there at the time of Jeremiah was very certain. The enemies were going coming from the north, and they were going to take him out. And indeed, they did. The United States' future is certain in the sense that the rules by which it'll be established is well-documented. But the good news is, is that there's room in our prophetic scenario for a revival. There's opportunity for you and I to pray for this country, to pray that God himself, through his power and spirit and agencies, can can bring this country to an awareness of its roots, of the basis by which it achieved a prosperity and a freedom and a, a sanctity of the individual, unparalleled in human history.
1: You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Jeremiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store and search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry.